The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Let's uh, go now to the Lord in prayer as we look at 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. Father, we thank you that, that you love us. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to live, to die, and to rise, that we might have hope and life beyond this world and yet in this world. Um, Father, we thank you for the future that we have. Uh, We ask for your forgiveness for not living as if, Lord Jesus, you were raised. Um, We need you to come by your spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning precisely how we might live in light of the powerful uh, reality of your resurrection, Jesus. We need you to speak to us. We need you to deal with the idols of our hearts. We need you to allow us to hear old things in new ways. We need you to give us hope, but in the midst of hope to um, feel repentance. Um, Lord Jesus, we beg that you would come and you would teach. Um, Father, I pray for your strength. I pray for a clear, clear thoughts and communication of your word that is clear. Um, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if uh, many of you saw, but Keldon Johnson, um, unless you're a Kentucky fan or a college basketball fan, you probably don't know that name, but he is a star on the Kentucky basketball team, or I guess I should say he was a star on the Kentucky basketball team because he just declared for the NBA draft uh, that is to come. And yet someone saw him in Los Angeles driving uh, a McLaren 720S, a Spider. That car is a half a million dollar car. Now, if you follow the progression, I just said he is going to declare for the draft, but the draft has not happened. So what that means is he does not have the cash yet. And what he's doing is he is living off of a faith in a future wealth as if he presently has it. His future is determining his presence. And dear friends, that is the resurrection of Jesus. If we believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, then we can live off of a future wealth presently. We can live our lives differently. Uh, the, The words that we were singing, life is worth the living just because you live, has immense application. Practical application. Heaven and glory, the new heaven and the new earth, is not something that we are to kind of put like as a retirement account out here and just not think about it. But it is to be our bank account that we are drawing from all throughout the day, that we're swiping it, that, you know, we're going to it constantly. It is our present power. It is our present wealth. And yet, what we see in the book of Corinthians, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, is um, Paul, and in especially 1st Corinthians 15, is Paul is addressing um, the, the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus to a people that are not living as if it's real. They have forgotten it. And so what he's saying is this, 
He's saying, look, the church is not, they're living as if there is no resurrection. And I would have to say, friends, that that is the church today, and it's been the church in every age, that we as Christians are living a stronger theology of the here and now with complete um, and, 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 and highly deficient, at the very least, theology of the future. And that needs to change. You see, that's what Paul is saying here in, in 1 Corinthians 15.32. He literally says this, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And, and it's for real. If Jesus was not risen, we are wasting our time this morning. Well, I mean, if there is a God, I mean, surely he's pleased that I'm giving up something and I'm coming to this out. No. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We're fools. And, and yet the church, I don't know what we're doing. We're living as if that is true. Jesus hadn't really died because what we're really doing is coming here. But what really has our heart is outside of these walls. And Paul says, he lifts up the resurrection, he says, guys, you've got to get this right. And, and if you look at the book of Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, what you see is the indicators, the barometer, if you will, that they are living as if the resurrection is not really real, is the way they deal with their money, their sex, and the church community. I mean, that's why it's First Corinthians we go to, oh, you know, we're all body parts of Jesus. We're the body of the Lord. The ear can't say to the hand, you know, you're of no value. You know, I'm more important than you. And what was going on? I mean, they were coming to the Lord's Supper and they were viewing it as a, as a, a drunken feast, you know, a time to get drunk and a time to get full. Uh, full and they were, you know, um, um, being greedy at the Lord's. What was going on? Basically, they had a consumeristic view of the church. The church was there to serve them, not them, the church. Sound familiar? And then money and sex. <laughs> I mean, do I need to say more? Well, I will say more. Uh, you see, in the church, the, our idols, they, they switch from generation to generation, but they really stay the same. And that's why the Bible's so relevant in any age at any time. You see, my generation in the church that I grew up in was soft on uh, sex, um, excuse me, soft on money, but very hard on sex. They had a high, you know, a, a high fence for sexual immorality, but a very low fence view toward money. And yet our generation today has a very high fence towards money and, and you know, justice and equality, and yet um, a very low fence when it comes to sexuality. But it's the same idolatry. If you've got a ship sinking, one guy grabs his money, one guy, guy grabs his sex. I mean, they're still both going down. And that's really what it looks like. That's the desperation. There is no future. There is no real resurrection. Therefore, i got to grab one or the other. And this is what Paul is getting at here. You see, the church I grew up in... They would preach hard on uh, sexual immorality, and therefore, if you were divorced in the church, you know, you couldn't hold office, and, you know, you, were, you felt shamed. You know, even if it was a biblical divorce, you just felt shamed, and, you know, any kind of sexual immorality was just, you know, there was so much guilt and so much shame, and the fence was so high. 
And it's true. I mean, Jesus has a lot to say about sexuality. We'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus also has a lot to say about money. Probably more about money than about sexuality. He tells a rich young ruler, hey, all right, you feel like you've done great? Then go sell everything you have and give to the poor and then follow me. And yet the sermons I heard on that was basically, well, it's still, it's okay if you, know, you tithe 10% and spend the rest, the 90% on yourself. It's okay. I mean, you've worked hard. You have a successful business. You're a successful business person. You, you've earned that trip. You've earned that car. You've earned those clothes. You've earned that house. You've, you've earned those trips. You've earned, so don't touch that. I mean, look at King David. He was wealthy. And, and we heard those sermons and yet those liberals over there that were soft on sexuality We're distorting the scripture. We're sola scriptura. We're a reformed church. No. No. We're being just as selective as those who are being soft on sexuality. Jesus also tells a woman who's been married five times and the man she's living with or with at that moment, living with, doing life with, sleeping with, is not her husband. And Jesus addresses her. And he calls her out of that lifestyle. He tells us in the scriptures that you've heard it said of the people uh, long ago, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you have lusted after your neighbor in your heart or a woman in your heart, man in your heart, you're guilty of judgment. He doesn't take the Old Testament and bring it down. He takes the Old Testament and he heightens it. Oh, you know, but here in the church, oh, you can't tell a wealthy business person that Jesus was literally saying, sell all you have and give to the poor. I mean, come on. We are, you know. Oh, but he's literally saying homosexuality is a sin. Adultery is, you know, he's literally saying it's the same. We're both doing scriptural gymnastics to fit our cultural idols. And to really be sola scriptura is to live under the word and say, no, I don't pick and choose. I come under. And it's hard. I don't want to preach this sermon. It's hard. It's impossible. I listened to a sermon recently that literally rocked my world. Um, I put it online and uh, on a realm. I hope you'll go to it. Um, it's preached by a man by the name of Sam Alberry. The British, I think he's British, could be Australian. I don't know. I'm not great with accents, but, um, you know, anyway. Um, Sam, um, you know, came to the realization that he was same-sex attracted when he was a teenager. And he became a Christian in high school, and those desires did not change. But he began to look at the Scriptures and see, as a disciple of Jesus, what the Scripture said about sexuality. And he came to the conclusion that, um, as a a man with same-sex attraction, that he was being called to celibacy. And um, that he was being called, therefore, to a life in which he would not be married. Um, not have children and so forth. I mean, this is coming out of his mouth. And he's, he preached, he's a preacher, um, and preached one of the, probably the best, I don't know, maybe the, one of the top five sermons I've ever heard on discipleship. 
And he said after one of his sermons um, and telling his story, you know, a, a believer came up to him and said this. He said, it has to be really difficult for you to follow Jesus because it really goes against the very core of who you are. And this is what he said, I quote, if you think the gospel has slotted in easily to your life, I don't think it's the gospel of this Jesus that you received. If you think the cost of discipleship is too high for our LGBTQ friends, you think it's too high for everyone. If you're a Christian and you think this, you probably haven't counted the cost of discipleship in your own life. Jesus demands everything from all of us. He says this, and everything in his hands is better. Friends, if Jesus hasn't put, put his hand on something in your life that you said, no, not that, then you're not following Jesus. I don't know. I do know who you're following. You're, you're following the God of this age. If there is not something in your life where you want to run, where, where it doesn't feel like he's literally ripping the skin off of you, with no anesthesia, then you are not following Jesus. Why? Because we are all idols. That means we all, or excuse me, we're all idolaters. Therefore, we all have idols. And an idol is not something that you just kind of keep in the corner. It's something that you bow down to. It's something that is owning you. It's something that you think you must have it to live. It could be your reputation. It could be your body. It could be your looks. It could be your money. It could be your job. It could be your reputation. It could be power. It could be sex. It could be money. It could be fun. It could be whatever. But if you haven't dealt with Jesus demanding that you bow the knee to him, not that, then you are not following Jesus. And this is the way that we really live as if there is no resurrection. You say, now what does the resurrection have to do with idolatry? Well, think about it like this. You know, I hear, you can't, come on, Richard. Come on, Richard. I mean, come on. You can't tell a 30-year-old single person that they can't have sex. Come on. I mean, in this day and age... Come on, Richard. I mean, you, you can't really believe that homosexuality is sin, you know. Come on, Richard. You can't really believe, come on, that that Jesus would have one sell all that he has and give it to the poor. I mean, come really, come on. I mean, it's just metaphorical, right? It's just hypothetical. It's just a nice little suggestion. It's You see... It is literally unthinkable to give up some idols in our culture today. It's not even taken seriously. (laughs) And what we're saying is, life is now. And yeah, this rosy, immaterial thing in the future, that's good for when you die and for old people and retired people and, you know, but come on. Let's get real. Let's talk about reality. And what Paul is saying is this. If this isn't reality, then don't even give it a nod. It's worthless. It's a lie. In fact, you're misspeaking for God. You're telling God. You're you're misspeaking for Him. You're, You're a false witness of Him. 
He's saying, quit playing a game. The resurrection says real life is coming. And the way it works is this. I give it up. And it's kind of like a diet. Somebody won't sell them out. They're actually in this room. Typically, I tell illustrations. say, y'all don't know them. Well, they're in this room right now. And uh, they told me last night they were on a diet. And they said, I miss carbs so bad. You know, it because we love carbs. I mean, I love carbs. Well... When you go on a diet, you want that desire to be fulfilled. When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, he knows that longing. But that longing heightens the awareness for what you're going to get in glory. It's a training. It's a looking forward. See, whatever we give up, this is what the resurrection says, whatever we give up for Jesus, money, sex, comfort, marriage, reputation, we will have a thousand times over with Christ in a literal, real glory better than we can possibly imagine. You can't possibly tell a bunch of people to love each other outside of their culture or their race or class. or You can't, you can't possibly say... You know, you can tell them to come to church together, but to say, make each other their real family? Unless there is a resurrection of the dead. So secondly, belief in the resurrection is personal. We've got to understand the nature of this hope, this resurrection hope. And maybe this will help you out. Rachel and I have had, and our girls, have had the privilege as a pastor in this day and age, we've had a number of very generous people um, allow us to use their homes or second homes all over the country, from Wyoming to Florida, from New York to Mexico, even outside of this country. Um, and every time we go to someone else's home and, and you know, they've, they've lent it to us, and we know them personally. They're typically in our church body or associated with our church body. And we feel a huge amount of indebtedness. And, and we feel a huge responsibility to leave it better, even better than we found it, you know. And uh, we've even had, you know, I, I remember one owner of, of a um, man who owns a lake house or condominium. And he said, man, you guys need to come back more often. I've never seen our floors that clean, you know. And it's like, y'all feel free anytime." What's the point? Gratitude obligates you. You see, thankfulness obligates because it motivates. Gratitude and thankfulness is a superior motivation to the law because of the superiority of relationship. I mean, here's the, here's a hypothetical, not really. Um, if, if somebody off the street comes to me and says, hey, I need you to come to my house and clean it. It's like, what? Who are you? But if I have somebody who has a house at the base of the Teton Mountains in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, with the Snake River out the front door and the shadows of the Tetons, and they leave a list on the counter that says, hey, do you mind tidying up a little bit? I say, where's the mop and the Windex? I'm ready to go to work. Why? Because of relationship, because of gratitude, because of thankfulness, because there was, you know, their generosity motivates my obedience. 
And that's what it is right here with Jesus. See, the good news of the gospel is a real hope. Look at um, um, how Paul starts chapter 15. He says, let me remind you of the gospel. He says this, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and then on the third day, or he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What does he do? He doesn't give a command without the person. The kingdom of God and, and, and um, the demands of God make absolutely no sense out of relationship with God, with, with the person. You see, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. Say, <laughs> so what does that have to do with anything? That means we were built to be wed. And yet earthly weddings, our earthly marriages, are just tiny little shadows. I mean, the literally the best thing you can experience in an earthly marriage over a lifetime is but a speck of the intimacy and the love and the relationship and the experience that you're going to have with your true husband in glory in the new heaven and the new earth. That's reality. I mean, anybody that's put hope in marriage can tell you there is not ultimate hope in marriage. I mean, (laughs) but anybody that puts their hope in Christ will find the one for whom they were truly made. You see, Jesus doesn't just come and say, clean up sexually, give your money, and then maybe. No, he comes. He lives under the law for us. He obeys the law in our place. And so now, becoming a Christian, being a Christian, is not conditioned upon our obedience because Jesus has already obeyed for us. And then he became all of our filth, all of our sin, and he went to the cross and he was punished. He was judged by the just and holy God of the universe, his father, and he was treated as if he were we. And now through faith, as we receive him, our sins are forgiven, we are declared righteous, and we are loved and embraced, but it doesn't end there. We are loved and embraced and we have a future glory waiting for us in the new heaven and the new earth. That will be much like this earth but a million times better. He tells a hungry crowd. He he sees what a crowd that is hungry that hadn't eaten in three days. And can you imagine what food is like to, to you when you hadn't eaten in three days? And what does he say? I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger again. Wow. He comes to this woman at the well and he says, Look, I know you think men are going to satisfy you. I know you think sex is going to satisfy you. But but let me just tell you something. Everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again. She was at a well drawing of water. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, dear friends, Thomas Chalmers, an old dead Puritan preacher, said this. He said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. 
Is Jesus power to you? Is Jesus the object of your affections? You don't just have some mental, intellectual relationship, but is he the object of your affections? Is he the object of your desiring? At the end of, of um, the sermon that Sam Alberry preached, he said, look, do I, want, do I sometimes wish I could get married and have children? Yes. But, oh, the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus better. I can't let anything get in the way. You see, there is intimacy. He's not missing out on intimacy. He's, missing, he's, he, he's forfeited one intimacy for a superior intimacy. Do you think like that? Dear friends, that's what it means to be a Christian, or it means nothing. And then thirdly and finally, belief in the resurrection will get you busy. I don't know if you've heard uh, Eric Hasseltine. Uh, he had a radio talk show, 92.9 ESPN Radio. He signed off Friday for the first time. No warning, just at the end of the show, he said, guys, i got something to tell you. Um, I'm done. And he's still going to be the radio voice of the Grizzlies. But he said, you know, his dad died a year, to, year ago. And he said, um, I, you know, I just looked in the eyes of my seven-year-old son recently. And I thought, you know, it's, I, it, it's time for me to spend more time with him. Uh, he looked in the eyes of his um, daughter going into high school. And he said, it's time to spend more time with her, what he realized was something he, that he needed to give up something significant for something more significant. He realized that no one could replace him as the father of these two children, and this was a better investment. It's not like seven and a half years, ninety-two point nine radio talk show, two and a half hours a day was nothing. But oh, compared to this, do you see where I'm going with this? See. The resurrection is the most substantial message possible. But I can't tell you what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like. The scriptures literally don't describe it a whole lot. And I think there's a reason for that. I, I thought about it this morning, early this morning. I, I, um, Terrence Young, and we need to congratulate. He's not here, so no sense in clapping for him now. But uh, he graduated from seminary Friday from Grand Canyon Seminary in, in Phoenix. And you can clap. I mean, we can celebrate. We're going to really clap next week. Got his MDiv. Well, then he and Ashley yesterday went to the Grand Canyon, and I said, man, you better send me a picture of the Grand Canyon, and he posted one on Facebook. I've never seen the Grand Canyon, but I looked at that picture, and in my mind, I, I kind of, I've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, but when I saw him standing in front of the Grand Canyon, I remembered, oh, man, it's bigger than my dreams. It's, it's bigger than my imagination. It, it's, I just forget how big it is. It's massive. It's, it's humongous, you know. And dear friends, that's what's going to happen in glory. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, I can sit here and stand here and tell you all day, we can long for it. But dear friends, there is no way to understand what it's going to be like. But when we believe it, it changes us. 
Paul starts out in verses 9 through 11, For I'm the least of the apostles and don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he says this, And his grace to me was not without effect. You see, he's countering, If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Oh, it had an effect on me. No, I worked harder than all of these other bum apostles. That's basically what he's saying. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. Paul is saying is, man, when I understood what Jesus has done for me, I couldn't quit talking about it. Now, some theologians in, in um, um, Bible commentaries talk, you know, use that, this whole idea of work. I worked harder than all of them. All our work is equal, and, and it's true. I believe in that. I believe in the, the you know, that, that all the work we do is for the glory of God and is important. But the work he's talking about here is the work of telling other people. It is living for the resurrection and telling other people about the resurrection. And he ends by saying, look, it's not just me that needs to get busy, but it's you. He says this in verse 58, our, our, finally our verse for the morning. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Isn't that beautiful? Because of the hope you have, because of the literal resurrection of Jesus, because even though you die, you live. Even though you're, you're you know, whatever, whatever your condition is, oh, it's going to be, don't worry. You're missing out on nothing. It's coming. Just wait. Let nothing move you. Nothing. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. What work is he talking about? He's talking about telling people about the resurrection. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What in the world does he mean by that? I, literally, I have worked and worked and worked and I don't know. I mean, this is what I'll tell you. There are works that are just going to burn up and be worthless, and I think that's all the stuff we did for our own glory. The work that we do for the resurrected king, the work that we do in, in hopes and longing, the work that we do for the coming kingdom. Now, I know this part. We work for out, out of the principles of the coming kingdom, and we see that the coming kingdom is going to be a kingdom of, um, of equity, uh, Social equity, economic equity, you know, uh, we're all going to be loved and treated, you know, in the same um, manner in regard to God. And we're going to treat one another out of that justice. And, and li- I get all that. But what does it mean now that when I'm working for justice or I'm preaching the gospel, I've, you know, given up being, you know, whatever. And I'm, what does it mean that my work now is going to last in... You know, I don't know 100%, but what I do know is that the one who made me with the desires that I have, the one who gave me the work to do in this life and gave me this life, the one who made me to long for a future glory is the one who's going to fulfill all of my and our desires. My creator is going to fulfill me. And in some way, the work I do now is connected to glory. 
The work I do now will live on in glory. There will be no remembrance of the selfishness and all this stuff. But what will live on is the beauty and the majesty, maybe like this stained glass windows up here. You know, I will be able to look back and go, man, that was beautiful, the things that I gave up to do the work of the Lord. But here's the reality. If we don't live with the hope of the resurrection before us, Is there any hope or assurance? Um, Are are we going to have any power in this life to give up what we must to follow Jesus? You see, when there's a bit of ambiguity um, in the scriptures, there's always clarity with God. And what that means is we can trust him. And so what we need to do now is we need to look at our lives and say, what are the things that I'm telling Jesus he can't touch? What are the things I'm telling Jesus this is not for you? What have we locked away in the vault of our lives? What have we, you know, twisted the combination lock to and said, not that? The reason we have to deal with that is because to trust Jesus is to trust that whatever that is, is going to be fulfilled perfectly in reality forever in glory. It's to say, Jesus, I trust you with that. Because if we can't trust him with that, then we can't trust him with anything. If we can't trust that he is going to be a better steward of that, than me, then can we really think that we're following Jesus? It's a hard sermon. It's a hard reality. But it is a beautiful hope. One day, someday, we will be made like Jesus and we will be with Jesus. One day, someday, every desire will be fulfilled. One day, someday, we will be ushered in to the reality of his kingdom and doing whatever work we do and living whatever life we live. We will realize a true beloved community, a true beloved and, and perfect reality, and we will know want no more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus... Deal with the things that we've locked in the vault and we're not allowing anyone to mess with, especially you, Lord Jesus. I pray that you would give us a hunger for the new heaven and the new earth. I pray, O God, that we'd see that our strongest desiring in this life will be fulfilled in ways that will absolutely please and blow our minds in ways that will last through eternity. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would show us how much you love us, how you long for us to come into your kingdom and live under your rule and listen to you and not the culture and not our own flesh. Oh God, I pray that you would send your spirit right now to do work in our hearts that we might let go 
so that we might be, we might fall into the one who has hold of us. Lord Jesus, get glory for yourself. Do a mighty work in this place. Do a mighty work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.